Well, good morning, and again, what an amazing day, not only to be with the Lord, but to, to witness the mystery of Christian baptism, a covenant child, and grafting into the very body of Christ, mystically in communion on earth with the body of Christ in heaven. It's an amazing event, and, and in God's great providence, we happen to be doing a series through Matthew, and we have come to this passage right on the day when we could preach on baptism again. And I remind you, though, that, that we come into a context where the focus has been repent as a means to prepare for the very baptism of Christ. John's baptism was a preparatory baptism, anticipating the ultimate baptism. And today, particularly, we want to continue to think about this idea of repentance, but but it's going to take a turn. It's going to take a twist. Could it be that, that we are to repent of our repentance? Is there a kind of repentance that leads to death and yet another that leads to life? Is there a kind of repentance that we might associate with old religion? And is there a kind of repentance that we ought to associate with a new covenant religion. And so with that, let's open, let's ask God to open our eyes and ears. Lord, we ask that you would come. We pray that you would be with us now. Enlighten us, Lord. Give us the sense as to what you would want us to hear for us in our lives. Change us, Lord. Transform us. We pray even now the power of Christian baptism by the Holy Spirit would be a power that works in us into a newness of life. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, you'll remember, but again, if you weren't here, that's fine. A very quick summary here that the context of our passage, which really is going to begin with, with Christ's baptism, is a context where where John the Baptist enters into the world and his ministry with an incredibly dramatic enactment. It's dramatized even in the way it's described into the context into which he comes, into this context of a wilderness. And we've seen how a wilderness is, is a metaphor, if you will, for a barren and cursed land, a place that is lifeless. Indeed, he's clothed as one who has taken a vow of poverty to identify with the poverty of Israel, to identify with even the brokenness of the world. Someone who would look like a survivalist to us today in the middle of a desert. We learn how all of this is directing us to the reality that in the coming of the Messiah, and we often forget this, is the becoming of the great and final judge, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, is in fact the judge. How it is that, that he speaks to Israel who is unrepentant, and he describes them as a brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Indeed, this preparation for a judge is before us in the ministry of John the Baptist. But he also is coming, preaching, repent for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven is coming. 
same judge who would bring about the curse, the final and consummate curse, a sense in which John wants us to hear him say, look, you think the world is cursed now, you've seen nothing yet. There is a great curse coming, a judgment justified by God, even as we heard in our Ezekiel passage, anticipating the very baptism that we're to study today. A baptism that again comes into a context where Israel has defamed God's holy name. And then that turns us to Christ. Enter Christ. This one who is coming mightier than John. This one who will bring a winnowing fork in his hand. Who will come with the Holy Spirit and fire. Always a, a phrase, particularly the idea of fire that is descriptive of what we understand to be hell. But here, of course, he comes to bring salvation as well. You see, about hell, J.I. Packer said it this way, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive they actually, what they actually chose either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. John's baptism wants us to repent of self-worship, wants us to repent of self-autonomy, wants us to repent of the rejection of God as our Lord. Indeed, he will later say, John the Baptist mentions the purpose of his baptisms, quote, I baptize you with water unto repentance. In Acts chapter 19, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, Jesus. The baptism of Christ, then, is the climax. And yet, we began to see last week and then stopped the sermon short, didn't we, if you were here. For when Christ came, he came speaking, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this kingdom of heaven, of course, speaks of, of the sphere of God's sovereignty, the sphere of God's lordship. Heaven is that place, the promised land, where under the sovereign lordship of God, the people flourish. They are brought to life. Isaiah 40 is quoted, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Israel and cry to her, that her warfare with God, you could say, is over. That her iniquity is pardoned. And that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A, a euphemism for saying, not what they deserved. In other words, this repentance is everywhere. And yet, the question is raised. What is exactly that repentance unto salvation? What would it look like? What would it be for us to be sprinkled clean water? The same water that would bring judgment, a water that could bring salvation and cleansing and purification. How do we get that water sprinkled upon us in the images that are given to us by Ezekiel? And so I want us now to look carefully at the entrance of Christ into this passage. That was a brief summary of the whole sermon last week. But now we're going to look at verse 13 through 15, and particularly the circumstances of Jesus' baptism. And then secondly, we're going to look at 16 through 17, 
and the reaction of God to Jesus' baptism. First, the circumstances. We're told, as you heard read, that Jesus came from Galilee. That is a place outside of where the, quote, covenant sphere of God's people were supposed to be. He's coming outside into the sphere of a covenant context to be baptized. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Notice then this incredible purposefulness in Christ's coming to John. I mean, the, the, the grammar makes it very, very clear. This from Galilee to Jordan, this purpose infinitive, as we call it in grammatical terms, and how it's constructed very carefully to say there was a strong, purposeful intentionality. I mean, this is Christ with a determined face walking into the context of John's baptism of repentance. Notice John's reluctance again. We rightly understood Christ to be in no need of his baptism. It says he tried to hinder him. It's an action word there. He was hindering him. It'd be curious how he was doing that. Perhaps just verbally. Perhaps saying, no, I'm not gonna do it. I'm just not gonna do it. You're the Christ. You have no need of repentance. The rhetorical question, I need to be baptized by you, he said. And yet you come to me? Notice the response. We're moving quickly, aren't we? The response is emphatic. In fact, it's a double emphatic. He says, let it be so, and then adds to it, now. I mean, he's serious. He's intentional. He's on a mission. What is it? Why? That is, Christ is the great judge, think about it, who will, who, who will baptize us, either with the judgment waters or the salvation waters, depending on our relationship to Christ. I mean, he is the focal point. Why would he be baptized? Was it that he came to be a, a moral example, as some have read in the passage? Hmm, you know, kind of lead from the front sort of a thing, servant leader. Is that what's going on here? Was it to start a new religion or a movement, perhaps? Like something different from John's. To co-opt John's baptism. Some even thought that in the first century. What was it? That's where you want to notice very, very carefully. We're told why in order to fulfill righteousness. In order to fulfill righteousness. R.C. Sproul notes about this. I don't think what he's saying, I don't think there's any more important text in all of the New Testament. Can you believe that? I guess he's prone to exaggeration, right? Jesus was sent to fulfill all righteousness. What was meant by that? And then we begin to see another picture, don't we? I mean, what is righteousness? Well, righteousness could be defined as, as obeying God's law, 
keeping God's commandments. It's rightness. It's living rightly according to God, if you will. It's, it's actually a, a, a legal term. It's, it's to be legally, if you will, in a contractual sense, right, in good standing, you could say, with God, the, the, the originator of the contract. It's, it's also a kind of word that can be used even in, in economic terms. A, a kind of, uh, a, the balance sheet is right, if you will. And so what's going on in this righteousness fulfillment? Well, what we begin to see here is that is even as the Ezekiel passage, if you remember it, it speaks of a day when there will be a kind of baptism that will give a people true repentance, that their true repentance will be such as to be given a new heart, a new life, a new obedience. And so if his people required to keep the law, which is a reflection of the moral beauty of God, if we are to live and image God's beauty and holiness as, as it's quantified in a certain sense through the law, the contract, if you will, of creation, if that's what our intent was, then repentance would be to keep it, right? It would be to keep it. The people back in the days of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, they made that covenant, that pledge. It was an ominous day. We should have known something was not quite right because they prayed, God, in all that you've told us to do and everything you've said for us to do, we will do. They were emphatic back in those days. They were intentional back in those days. I suspect with well intentions. <laughs> but now those of us who, who are watching this story from afar, many years after the days of, of giving of the Ten Commandments and all of that, I suspect if it were a, a movie, that's where the, the deep sound comes. You know, the one that tells you that something really bad's about to happen. Because it's true. Israel never, ever fully obeyed. They couldn't keep their vow. And the promise that was tagged to that in an outward geopolitical way was never fully gained. The whole law was, was like a tutor, a mentor, if you will. The whole scheme that God made with Israel in this geopolitical sense is bringing us to yet another moment in history where Israel is being asked to keep the law, to keep righteousness, to be righteous as a way to prepare for the coming of God's judgment. And if this story stopped at John, everything I hope you know about Christianity in, this con in our context would not be here. It would be right back to Sinai. Right back to a day that would start an old story over again. A people relying on their own repentance in order to gain God's blessing. 
Now, there were signs in the Old Covenant. Don't think that they were saved by works of the law. They weren't. They were saved by Jesus Christ too. Moses was. All of those. And how, how so, Pastor? Jesus hadn't come. Well, he was there also uh, typified, if you will, foreshadowed in the sacrificial system where there was a scapegoat. All of that stuff comes to bear in this incredible moment in the ministry of Christ. How would Christ initiate his ministry on earth? What would the first act be? You're reading it right now. His first act was to be baptized by John. To enter into repentance. I think you'll know where I'm going. Whose repentance? Jesus was in no need of repentance. But the unique person of Christ, one born of a woman, one born of the Holy Spirit, both God and human, now enters into repentance. A person, by his very nature, capable of representing humanity, a person by his very nature capable of representing God. It's an incredible event. It's a huge event. This is the very crux of what Christianity believes. And so there's a sense in which we could say, and theologians have described this, this vicarious act of God, in an active righteousness sense and also in a passive righteousness sense. On the one hand, he is coming and through the baptism of John as one who will keep all righteousness. He will actively accomplish and satisfy all righteousness. Remember, righteousness is that code for how we're in good standing with God. By perfect obedience under his lordship. He came into baptism for perfect righteousness, perfect repentance of active righteousness. But in his passive sense, he submitted himself to the very curse that the waters of baptism signify. He put himself into hell, even as he was perfectly satisfying a righteousness that would put him into heaven. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you just can't dream this stuff up. There's no religion that has any story like this. Every other is a moral exemplar sort of story. Maybe somehow by influence, we'll be made to be better people. What we put out will come back. Karma, something like that. This is totally radically different from all that. It's an amazing thing how it is that Christ is not just by his death on the cross satisfying the curse of righteousness, but how by his life he is satisfying the very stipulations of righteousness. Well, I want us to think about this a little bit. Think about if all Jesus did was die for your sins, which is typically what we think a lot about, that would remove all of your guilt, yes. That would leave you, though, sinless. 
in the sight of God, but you wouldn't be righteous. You would be innocent, but not righteous, because you haven't done anything to obey the law of God, which is what righteousness requires. Philippians 3 says it this way, and he, and he be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from my keeping the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, Paul says his goal is that he may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own. There is a kind of repentance, and I suspect many of you think this is what repentance is in terms of this thing we call Christian religion, where we must therefore satisfy righteousness by repenting. Paul, again, will say, that's going to lead you to death. Is that your notion of Christianity, maybe? You're here for the first time, maybe, maybe you're here for many times, and And it's just now dawning on you, because it dawns on a lot of people. It dawned on me after many years, honestly, of being a Christian. That, wow, there is a kind of repentance that I need to repent of. That religious kind of repentance that puts the weight and the burden upon myself to get right with God. That's not the kind of repentance that leads to salvation. Paul makes this very clear, that his goal is that he may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, end quote. Don't ever forget that. But rather, it is a kind of righteousness that is credited to us, received by faith alone. Now, what is faith? There's all kinds of folks who have tried to explain this. I think it's really simple. It's wanting it. It's just wanting it. And I guess there's part of it, too. You just got to take it. So maybe you could divide it into two. I don't know. Wanting it? Thanks. (laughs) It's so simple that we hardly know what to do with all this religious stuff that we've put around it. We're saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. It's the free gift of God, says Paul. Lest anyone could boast of their righteousness. This is the key. But think about that. Christ entered baptism, which is to enter repentance for us. A repentance that would at once satisfy righteousness curse and a repentance that would also satisfy righteousness. Without both, either we'd be in hell or we'd be in limbo waiting for heaven. But we wouldn't be in heaven without both. Righteousness is the ticket to heaven. So maybe he would have kept us out of hell by his death But his righteousness is what gets us into heaven. It's also important. Paul says it this way, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption from God. 
And again, Romans 5, for as by the one man's disobedience, ours, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous. God did not just send Christ to earth for Good Friday. He sent him to repent for an unrepentant people. That is amazing. Just think about that again. For us, he repented of all our sins. For us, he satisfied all just punishment for our unrepentance. Our sin is transferred to him. His righteousness is transferred to us. On and on it goes. Our guilt would have been removed, but we would simply be in the position of Adam and Eve again having nothing, nothing yet good. It's an incredible mystery, this Christian faith. I hope you're hearing it. It's a righteousness that we couldn't do. Again, there's this interesting context later in Matthew. The disciples came to him and said, Lord, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. And listen to how he answers referencing this very passage we're at today. He says this in Mark 10. Jesus said, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Oh boy, how naive. How naive so many of us are and our well intentions and our passion for Christ. I'm able, I will do it. Be careful of that kind of passion. And it's everywhere. It's the stuff that leads to death. A passion. He says this. They say, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He says, you're right, you will be able. But it's, it's going to be by my drinking it for you. By my being baptized for you. This is great. Look at the reaction now of God. I've gotten you to the point of what it means that Christ was baptized. To make it clear, he was representing you when he entered into John's baptism and me. He was repenting for you and for me. That is not the kind of religion people tend to think about, is it? And notice then the reaction of God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Notice it starts with behold. When you see that in a, in a scripture, it means something's about to be said or done, and it's really big. Notice what behold is. First of all, the heavens open up. Now, we really mean that there was some cosmological event. Okay? I mean, this is why Christianity is so unique. I mean, the very one who demonstrates that he is the sovereign over all things has the capacity to somehow, and whatever it means, open up heaven. There was some cosmological event. And in this event, we know that 
that this was uh, often uh, prophesied. For instance, by Daniel and by Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries. You see what's happening? The opening up of God's judgment upon earth, and yet now exhausted on the eternal man. Daniel as well, you shall be bathed with the water of heaven. Seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of mortals. And so the first event was a cataclysmic, cosmological event that absolutely stunned all those who were there to know that what just happened here, this baptism, is of such significance that it somehow satisfies what all the prophets had foreshadowed and and talked about, which was the coming of the great day of the Lord, the day when God would bring judgment upon the nations. Notice, secondly, the Holy Spirit, we're told, descends upon Jesus. There's three places in the Gospels where the Holy Spirit is operative in such an, an immediate kind of a way. One's the virgin birth, one's the resurrection, and the other is baptism. I bet you didn't know that baptism was such a big deal, did you? The very thing that happened today. It's that big of a deal. It's... It's the context for the operation of the Holy Spirit. We don't know for sure the form. It says like a dove. That could be a simile. What we do know, though, is that language, like a dove or or descriptive of of a bird hovering, well, where would you find that in your Old Testament story? Well, it starts with creation itself. That's how creation was was made, by the hovering of the Spirit. It's also where new creation is given. The same hovering, fluttering presence of the Holy Spirit is the presence of the Holy Spirit that hovers over the Red Sea, that hovers over the Noah's flood, that hovers over the temple and the way in which it descends, the Shekinah glory upon the temple. It's wherever there is salvation happening. Wherever there is creation, new creation happening, the Holy Spirit is come. Remember, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. Heavens open up, fire. Holy Spirit, salvation. You couldn't write this stuff, you know? I mean, this is, this is the, the, the continuity with the Old Testament is so crucial to understand what's going on here. And so you have this amazing context. It's also the context of an anointing. Throughout the Old Testament, prophets or judges were anointed by the Holy Spirit to execute God's great salvation on earth or even his justice on earth. And it would be described in these terms, this great anointing of the Spirit. It's interesting that how the great commission in John's gospel will be that he will breathe the Holy Spirit upon the apostles that they would be given the the anointing to execute or to to accomplish 
the forgiveness of sins. He gives them the power to forgive sins. Of course, he's talking to the church. How it is that the church has been given, there's a sense in which we must think about even what's happening right now in this room. There's a hovering and flipping of the Holy Spirit as he is in with, through, and of the the baptismal waters, as he's in with, through, and of the the preaching of the word, as he's in with, of, and through the ministry of one another together. All of this bringing the power of God into the life of Emory and of everyone baptized and grafted into this church. It's an incredible event that just took place because it's an event that wants to direct us all to the baptism of Christ, a baptism that will truly save. And so we have this voice. The Father speaks his approval. I put up there a quote from John Owens, but but to say it simply, our salvation is not predicated upon us and some kind of God's love for us. Did you notice how that passage in Ezekiel started off? It's not for your sake, Israel, that I'm about to do these things. We should never forget it. The Father's love for us is through his love for his Son. This is my Son, and whom I am well pleased a.k.a. he's righteous. He's worthy. And so everything in this passage is wanting to redirect our attention upon the repentance of Christ. There is a kind of repentance. There is a kind of religion, even Christian religion, that wants us to direct our focus on ourselves. Very dangerous. I'll explain a caveat in a minute. I'll just say it now. Clearly, those who repent of self-righteous repentance will then seek to imitate the very repentance of Christ. But see, it comes in a different way. I think, again, of 1 John. We love because he first loved us. It didn't say we love because we got to get ourselves together because the wrath of God is coming. It says we love, knowing the wrath is coming, yes, but we love because he first loved us. And therefore, perfect love cast out all fear. How would it mean to raise Emory and all of our children with that principle? Now, for the sake of the kids, um, I need to say something. Um, I remember, (laughs) I can actually remember when I preached a sermon like this back when my kids were young, and I can actually remember in the den over at 16 Arrowhead, uh, a couple of my kids coming at me really, really positively and saying, how come we have fear when you punish us? You shouldn't punish us, Dad. You shouldn't do anything. Now, now, it's complicated. (laughs) That's probably what I said. I don't remember what I said, but... What are we talking about here? It's true that God disciplines those he loves as a father disciplines a child. But it's a different kind of discipline. It's not a punishment. It's a discipline. That's the answer, basically. We don't have time to go into it. But there's a kind of training. There's a kind of discipline that is, that is not driven out of the fear of being rejected, but driven out of the love for someone to flourish 
God disciplines those who he loves. Yes. Things happen in our life. It's part of that. But we don't count it as punishment, if you mean by that, a dose of curse. It's rather a dose of tough love, if you will. Now, again, I wish we had more time to talk about that. But I want to just close with us making sure we're taking home what we need to take home here. You see, there is this this sort of religious repentance, which is self-righteous. You heard today the call to repent, that you might receive the Holy Spirit. That kind of repentance is not self-righteous repentance. Repentance can easily become a form of atoning for ourselves. Religious repentance often becomes a form of of self-sort of flagellation, if you will. Sometimes people think of repentance as as having a kind of remorse that tries to be sad enough to get God's mercy. That's not the kind of repentance that we're called to. We are going to be sad about our sins. We certainly should have remorse for it. But don't confuse that remorse, it's genuine and right even, a atoning sort of thing. Something that somehow is going to get God's approval because I'm sad enough or I'm beating myself up enough with with anti-praise, if you will. That's not repentance. That is to think that we're to try to convince God and ourselves that we are truly miserable and regretful so that we somehow, notice, it slips in there, deserve his forgiveness. You see, in the gospel, however we know that Jesus suffered and was miserable for our sins, we do not have to make ourselves suffer in order to merit forgiveness. He did it. He suffered. He repented. We simply receive it. It was earned by Christ's repentance. Again, John 1 says that God forgives us because he is just. That means fair. And you say, but how can God be fair? That's a remarkable statement. How can he be fair to forgive us since we didn't and can't repent? It would be unjust of God to ever deny us forgiveness because of Christ, you see. Have you ever thought about that? It would be unjust for God not to forgive us for the sake of Christ and what he did. That's the point of this great cataclysmic cosmological event of heaven opening up, voices coming down, Holy Spirit's coming down, because it's to say that God, the Father, recognizes the sufficiency, key word, underline it, of Jesus Christ for you. I am trying here on behalf of God to convince you it's that gracious. It's the hardest thing for us to believe, isn't it? Everything in the world is meritorious. And so is our salvation. But it's a substitutionary meritoriousness that brings us our salvation. And so I'm just going to leave it at this. I'm going to ask you, whether you're a Christian or not, to repent of your repentance today.
as you come to this table to, to ask the question, have I truly received the grace of God in accepting Christ's repentance on behalf of me? And I can hear it now. Someone, the devil maybe says, oh, that's going to set you free to licentiousness. This kind of gospel is going to, it's antinomian. No, it isn't. Quite the contrary. Every time religion tries to make self-righteous a term for being right with God, the law is reduced. The law is ignored. The law is put aside. It's the religious person, if I mean by that the the, the kind of person that's operating on the self-righteousness model of getting God's righteousness that can't confess and really face their sin. It's the religious person that must define sins in others to make them feel a little better about their righteousness. Moralism, Phariseeism is not a high view of the law. Both reduce the law to a capacity where we might could actually satisfy it in our own minds. So when you confess unrighteous or self-righteous repentance, you're going to be set free now to love the law because you're not afraid of it. And you're going to say, oh, how I love the law of God. How many of you say that? Raise your hand. Don't say Don't do it. You'd probably lie. How can we get to that place where I say, I love the law? Here's how. Because Christ's righteousness has satisfied it. Because God's mercy is the, is the soup that I drink and the air that I breathe. I'm not afraid of God's condemnation and rejection, which sets me free to love the law for him and to glorify him and by his strength and his power and his help more and more to live according to the law of God. It's the opposite of antinomianism, to repent of self-righteous repentance. And so I hope that you will have that kind of repentance, a repentance that at any link in your chain with respect to your relationship to God cuts out that even one link that has your rightness with God predicated upon your righteousness, your ability to keep the law. Cut it out. One chain. Sufficiency of Christ. Say that in your head. Sufficiency of Christ. The devil comes and says, you're not worth sufficiency of Christ. How do I know? Because the heavens opened up. Because the Holy Spirit descended. Because a voice came out of the heaven saying, I'm pleased. I'm satisfied. This is great news. I hope and pray if there's anyone here who's not experienced Christianity that way, that you'll repent of your repentance and you'll say, hallelujah, that is the funnest thing I've ever done in my life. 